0: Uh, Once upon a time, there was an outlook called humanism. The time I've got in mind is that of the Renaissance. The term at that time applied in the first place to new schemes of education, emphasizing the Latin classics and the tradition of rhetoric, but it came to apply more broadly to a variety of philosophical movements. There was an increased and intensified interest in human nature. One form of this was a new tradition inaugurated perhaps by Petrarch of writings about the dignity and excellence of human beings or, as the tradition inevitably put it, of man. These ideas were certainly not original with the Renaissance. Many of the arguments were already familiar. For instance, the Christian argument that the superiority of man or human beings was shown by the choice of a human being to be the vehicle of the incarnation. Or an older idea, which goes back at least to Protagoras, as he is presented by Plato, that humans have fewer natural advantages, fewer defenses, for instance, than other animals, but that they are more than compensated for this by the gift of reason and cognition. Others, of course, took a gloomier view of human powers and potentialities. Montaigne wondered how peculiar human beings were, and he was a lot less enthusiastic about the peculiarities that they had. But whether the views were positive and celebratory, or more sceptical and pessimistic, there was one characteristic that almost all those views shared with each other, and they shared it too with traditional Christianity. And this was hardly surprising, since virtually everyone in the Renaissance, influenced by humanism, was some sort of Christian. For a start, almost everyone believed that human beings were literally at the center of the universe, with the exceptions, perhaps, of Nicholas of Cusa and Giordano Bruno, who thought there was no center to the universe. Besides that purely topographical belief, however, there was a more basic assumption, that in cosmic terms, human beings had a definite measure of importance. In most of these outlooks, the assumption was that that measure of human beings' importance was high, that humans were particularly important in relation to the scheme of things. Well, that's most obviously true of the more celebratory versions of humanism, according to which human beings are the most perfect beings in creation. But it's also present, in fact, in outlooks that assign human beings a wretched and imperfect condition. Luther's vision, for instance, in which man is hideously fallen and can do nothing about it simply by his own efforts. The assumption is still there. Indeed, it's hardly an assumption. It's a central belief in the structure that that fact itself is of absolute importance. The cosmos may not be looking at human beings with much admiration, but it's certainly looking at them. The human condition is a central concern to God, so central, in fact, that it led to the Incarnation, which in the Reformation context, too, plays its traditional role as signalling man's special role in the scheme of things. If man's fate is a very special concern to God, there's nothing more absolute than that. It's a central concern, period. Well, now overtly anthropocentric views of the cosmos are certainly less common today than they were then. Leaving aside the distribution of concerns on Earth itself, which I'm going to come back to, people for a long time now have been impressed by the mere topographical rearrangement of the universe by which we're not in the center of anything interesting. Our location in the galaxy, just for starters, seems almost extravagantly (laughs) non-committal. Moreover, many people suppose that there are other living creatures on planets in this galaxy, in other galaxies, perhaps in other universes. It seems hubristic or merely silly to suppose that this enterprise has any special interest in us. Even Christians, or many of them, are less impressed by the idea that God must be more concerned with human beings than he is with any other creature, though I'm afraid I don't know what the current state of thought is about the Incarnation. The idea of the absolute importance of human beings seems firmly dead, or at least on the well on the way out. However, we need to go a little carefully here. The assumption I'm considering, as I put it, is that in cosmic terms, human beings have a definite measure of importance. The most common application of that idea, naturally enough, has been that they have a high degree of importance. And I suggested that that itself can take two different forms, the Petrarchan or celebratory form, in which man is splendidly important, and what we may call the Lutheran form, that what is of ultimate significance is the fact that man is wretchedly fallen. But there's another and less obvious application of the same assumption, that human beings do have a definite measure of importance in the scheme of things, but that it's very low. On this view, the significance of human beings to the cosmos is vanishingly small. Now, this may not be a very exciting truth about the cosmos, as contrasted with those other outlooks I mentioned, but it's still meant to be a truth about the cosmos. Moreover, it's meant to be an exciting, or at least a significant truth, about human beings. I think this may have been what Bertrand Russell was thinking when, for instance, in an essay significantly called A Free Man's Worship, he went on about the transitoriness of human beings, the tininess of the earth, the vast and pitiless expanses of the universe, and so on, in a style of self-pitying and at the same time self-glorifying rhetoric that made Frank Ramsey remark that he himself was much less impressed than some of his friends were by the size of the universe, perhaps because he weighed 240 pounds. (laughs) Now, this outlook can make people feel that human activities are absurd because we invest them with an importance which they don't really possess. Now, if someone feels about human activities in this way, there's never much point. It must be said in telling him that his feelings involve a muddle. The feelings probably come from some place which that comment won't reach. At the same time, they do involve a muddle. It's a muddle between thinking that our activities fail some test of cosmic significance and, as contrasted with that, recognizing that there is no test of cosmic significance. If there's no such thing as the cosmic point of view, If the idea of absolute importance in the scheme of things is an illusion, a relic of a world not yet thoroughly disenchanted, then there is no other point of view except ours in which our activities can have or lack a significance. And perhaps in a way, that's what Russell wanted to say. But his journey through the pathos of loneliness and insignificance as experienced from a non-existent point of view could only generate the kind of muddle that is called sentimentality. Nietzsche, by contrast, got it right when he said something to the effect that once upon a time there was a star in a certain corner of the universe and a planet circling that star and in it some clever animals who invented knowledge and then they died and the star went out and it was as though nothing had happened. Now, of course, there is in principle a third possibility between a cosmic point of view on the one hand and our point of view on the other, and that's a possibility familiar from science fiction, that one day we encountered other creatures who would have a point of view on our activities, a point of view which it's quite vital to add we could respect. Well, perhaps science fiction hasn't made very interesting use of this fantasy, But there may be something to learn from it, and I'm going to come back to it at the end of these remarks. Well now, suppose we accept that there is no question of human beings and their activities being important or failing to be important from a cosmic point of view. Well, that doesn't mean that there's no point of view from which they're important. There's certainly one point of view from which they're important, namely ours. Unsurprisingly so, since the we in question, the we who raise this question and discuss it with others who we hope will listen and reply, are indeed human beings. Now, it's just as unsurprising that this we often shows up within the content of our values. Whether a creature is a human being or not makes a large difference a lot of the time to the ways in which we treat that creature, or at least think that we should treat that creature Let's leave aside for the moment distinctions of this kind that are strongly contested by some people, such as the matter of what we're prepared to eat. Less contentiously, we speak, for instance, of human rights, and that means rights that are possessed by certain creatures because they're human beings, in virtue of their being human. We speak of human values. Indeed, you have here a distinguished university center for human values. Of course, that phrase could mean no more than that the values in question are possessed by human beings. But in that purely possessive sense, the term would hardly be adding much, since on this planet, at least, there isn't any other creature that has values, or certainly a centre to study and promote them. (laughs) Human values aren't just values that we have, but values that express our humanity. And to study them, as the centre does, is to study what we value in as much as we are what we are, that is to say, human beings. Now, there are some people who suppose that if in any way we privilege human beings in our ethical thought, if we think that what happens to human beings is more important than what happens to other creatures, if we think that human beings as such have a claim on our attention and care, in all sorts of situations in which other animals have less or no claim on us, they think that we're implicitly reverting to a belief in the absolute importance of human beings. They suppose that we are in effect saying, when we exercise these distinctions between human beings and other creatures, that human beings are more important, period, than those other creatures. Well, that objection is simply a mistake. We don't have to be saying anything of that sort at all. We don't have to be referring to cosmic importance. These actions and attitudes need express no more than the fact that human beings are more important to us. And that fact is hardly surprising. Well, that mistaken objection takes the form of claiming that in privileging human beings in our ethical thought, we're saying more than we should. We're claiming their absolute importance. That's the mistaken objection. Well, now there is a different objection, which might be put by claiming that we're saying less than we need to say. That is to say that we need a reason for these preferences in favour of human beings. Without a reason, this objection goes, that preference, the preference for human beings, will just be a prejudice If we've given any reason at all so far for these preferences, it's simply the one we express by saying, it's a human being, or they're human, or she's one of us. And that, the objectors say, isn't a reason. They'll remind us of the paradigm prejudices, racism and sexism. Because he's white, because he's male, are no good in themselves as reasons, though they can be relevant in very special circumstances. For instance, gender in the case of employing a bathroom attendant, though even that might be thought in some circles to involve a further prejudice. If the supposed reasons of race or gender are offered without support, he's a man, he's white, the answer they elicit is, quite rightly, what's that got to do with it? Those supposed reasons are equally of the form he's one of us, for a narrower us. Well, the objectors say the human privilege is itself just another prejudice, like racism or sexism, and they have a suitably unlovely name for it, speciesism. Well, now, how good is this objection? And how exactly does it work? Well, I'm afraid it'll take a little while to answer those questions, because they require us to try to get a bit clearer about the relations between our humanity on the one hand and our giving and understanding reasons on the other, and the route to that involves several stops. A good place to start, I think, is this. Not many racists or sexists have actually supposed that a bare appeal to race or gender, merely saying he's black or she's a woman, did constitute a reason. They were, so to speak, at a stage either earlier or later than that. It was earlier if they simply had a barely articulated practice of discrimination. They just went on like that, and they didn't need to say anything to their like-minded companions in the way of justification of their practices. Well, the day came when they did have to say something in justification. To those discriminated against, if they couldn't simply go on telling them to shut up, to outsiders or to radicals, or to themselves in those moments when they started to wonder how defensible it might be. And then they had to say some more. Mere references to race or gender wouldn't meet what was by then the need. Equally, references to supernatural sources, which said the same thing, wouldn't hold up for long something which at least seemed relevant to the matter at hand, uh, job opportunities, the franchise, or whatever it might be, something would have to be brought out about the supposed intellectual and moral weakness, say, of blacks or women. Well, these were reasons in the sense that they're at least to some degree of the right shape to be reasons. Though, of course, they were very bad reasons, both because they were untrue and because they were the products of false consciousness working to hold up the system, and it didn't need any very elaborate social or psychological theory to show that they were. Well, now, with the case of the supposed human prejudice, it doesn't seem to be quite like this. On the one hand, it isn't simply a matter of inarticulate or unexpressed discrimination. There's no secret that we're in favour of human rights, for instance. On the other hand, it's a human being, does seem to operate as a reason, but it doesn't seem to be helped out by some further reach of supposedly more relevant reasons of the kind which in the other cases of prejudice turned out to be rationalizations or false consciousness. We're all aware of some notable differences between human beings and other creatures on Earth. But there's a whole range of cases in which we cite or rely on the fact that a certain creature is a human being, but where those differences between us and other animals don't seem to figure in our thought as justifications for going on as we do. In fact, in many cases, it's hard to see how they could. Uniquely on Earth, human beings use highly articulated languages. They've developed, to an unparalleled extent, non-genetic learning through culture. They possess literatures and historically cumulative technologies, and so on. Well now, of course, there's quite a lot of dispute about the exact nature and extent of these differences between our own and other species. There's discussions, for instance, of how far some other primates transmit learned skills and whether they have local traditions in this. But this isn't the point. There isn't any showing a sharp and spectacular behavioural gap between ourselves and our nearest primate relatives. And that's no doubt because other hominid species have disappeared doubtless with our assistance. But why should considerations about those differences, true as they are about culture and technology and language and all that, why should those differences play any role at all in an argument about vegetarianism, for instance? What's all that stuff about language and culture and so on got to do with human beings eating some other animals but not human beings? It's hard to see any argument in that direction which won't turn out to say something like this, that it's simply better that culture, intelligence and technology should flourish as opposed, presumably, to all those other amazing things that are done by other species which are on the menu. Or consider, if you like, not the case of meat-eating, but of insecticides. If we have reason to use insecticides must we claim that it's simply better that we should flourish at the expense of the insects. If any evolutionary development is spectacular and amazing, it's the proliferation and diversification of insects. Some of them are harmful to human beings, their food or their artifacts, but they are truly wonderful. What these last points show is that even if we could get hold of the idea that it was just better that one sort of animal should flourish rather than another, it's not in the least clear why it should be us. But the basic point, of course, is that we can't get hold of that idea at all. That's simply another recurrence of the notion we saw off a little while ago, absolute importance, that last relic of the still enchanted world. Of course, we can say, rightly, that we're in favor of cultural developments and so on and think it's very important, But that itself is just another expression of the human prejudice we're supposed to be wrestling with. So there's something obscure about the relations between the moral consideration, it's a human being, and the characteristics that distinguish human beings from other creatures. If there's a human prejudice, it's structurally rather different from those other prejudices, racism and sexism. Well, now, this doesn't necessarily show it isn't a prejudice. Some critics will say, on the contrary, it shows what a deep prejudice it is, to the extent that we can't even articulate reasons that are supposed to underlie it. And if, as I said, we seem very ready to profess it, the critic will say that this shows how shamelessly prejudiced we are, And we, that we can express it, we profess it, because, very significantly, there's no one we have to justify it to, except a few reformers who are fellow human beings. Well, that's certainly a significant fact, and we have to bear it in mind. Other animals on this planet are good at many things, but not at asking for or understanding justifications. Oppressed humans, women and minorities, come of age in the search for emancipation when they speak for themselves themselves and no longer through reforming members of the oppressing group. But the other animals will never come of age. Human beings will always act as their trustees. And that's connected to a point which I'll come back to, that in relation to those other animals, the only moral question for us is how we should treat them. A point that I say I shall come back to. Now, someone who speaks vigorously against speciesism and the human prejudice is, of course, Professor Peter Singer, the IRA W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics in this very university. And I'm sorry, as I gather, that he's away at this time and can't be with us. Indeed, as you don't need telling here, he holds his chair at the said University Center for Human Values, at least I believe he does, which I've already mentioned. And I have wondered, I must say, what he makes of that name. In the purely possessive or limp sense of the expression, it's presumably all right, but in the richer sense of the expression human values, which must surely be its intention, I thought it would have sounded to him rather like a center for Aryan values. Well, whatever exactly may be the structure of the human prejudice, if it is a prejudice, Singer's work has brought out very clearly some important consequences of rejecting it. Consequences which he's been prepared to advocate in a robust style. Now a central idea involved in the supposed human prejudice is that there are certain respects in which creatures are treated in one way rather than another simply because they belong to a certain category, the human species. We don't, at this basic initial level, need to know any more about them. Told that there are human beings trapped in a burning building On the strength of that fact alone, we mobilise as many resources as we can to rescue them. When the human prejudice is rejected, two things follow, as Singer has made clear. One is that some more substantial set of properties, supposedly better fitted to give reasons, are substituted. The second is that the criteria based on those properties, the criteria which determine what you can properly do to a creature, are applied to examples one at a time. It's always a question whether a particular individual satisfies the criteria. Well, now let's consider the question not of protecting, but of killing. Singer thinks that our reasons for being less ready to kill human beings than we are to kill other animals, the, quote, greater seriousness of killing them, as he puts it, are based on, and I quote, Our superior mental powers, our self-awareness, our rationality, our moral sense, our autonomy, or some combination of these, they are the kinds of things we're inclined to say which make us uniquely human. To be more precise, they're the kind of thing that make us persons. End of quotation. Elsewhere, he cites with approval Michael Tooley's definition of persons as, quote, those beings who are capable of seeing themselves as continuing selves, that is, as self-aware beings existing over time. End of quotation. It's these characteristics that we should refer to when we're deciding what to do, and in principle we should refer to them on a case-by-case basis. Quote, If we're considering whether it's wrong to destroy something, surely we must look at its actual characteristics, not just the species to which it belongs. Unquote. And actual here is taken in a way that leaves no room for potentiality. You can't say that an embryo gets special protection because it's potentially a person. It's not yet a person, and therefore it's a non-person. Just as in Thule's, perhaps rather unlovely terminology, someone suffering from acute senile dementia is an ex-person. Well, as I've said, Singer brings out very clearly these two consequences of his view, namely that we rely on some properties other than belonging to the human race, some substantial properties, roughly those of personhood, and so we secondly apply them case to case. And he relies on those consequences in arriving at various controversial conclusions. When well, I am concerned with the view itself, the rejection of the human prejudice, rather than particular details of Singer's own position, but there are a couple of points which I should mention in order to make clear what's at issue. First, what Singer rejects isn't quite the form of the human prejudice to which I and many other people are attached. Singer considers the following familiar syllogism. Every human being has a right to life. A human embryo is a human being, therefore the human embryo has a right to life. Well, it's certainly a valid argument. We better agree that the conclusions follow from the premises. Those who oppose abortion and destructive embryo research, people who, particularly in the United States, are sometimes called pro-lifers, think both those premises are true, and therefore they accept the conclusion. Those who defend abortion and embryo experiment under certain circumstances have to reject one of the premises. They typically deny the second premise, namely, a human embryo is a human being. But Singer denies the first premise, namely, every human being has a right to life. More strictly, he thinks that the first premise, every human being has a right to life, is correct only if human being means person. Every person has a right to life, but in that sense, the second premise is false, The human embryo is a human being because the human embryo isn't yet a person. There is, he says, a sense in which the second premise is true because the embryo belongs to the species, but in that sense of human being, it's not true that every human being has a right to life. Now I mention this, perhaps rather fiddly, consideration because it distinguishes Singer from those such as most moderate pro-choice campaigners who accept, obviously enough, that the embryo is human in the sense that it's a human embryo, but don't yet accept that it's a human being, or rather don't accept that it's yet a human being, any more than a bovine embryo is a cow. My colleague Jonathan Glover once caused nearly terminal fury in a distinguished pro-life advocate in England by what seemed to me the entirely reasonable remark that if this gentleman had been promised a chicken dinner, and was served with an omelette made of fertilized eggs, he'd have a complaint. (laughs) Now, the point is an important one. The standard view, the view which Singer attacks, is that human being is a morally relevant notion, where human being indeed means an animal belonging to a particular species, our species. But those who hold that view are not committed to thinking that a fertilized ovum is already such an animal, any more so than the case of any other species. Well, Singer sets up then the principle that the idea relevant to these moral questions is not the species term human being, but the term person, where that brings in notions of self-awareness over time and so on. Well, it must be said, and this is a second detailed point, that he notably fails to apply this principle in a very thoroughgoing way. Singer has become notorious for defending infanticide in certain circumstances. He does so because, I quote, newborn infants are in most morally relevant respects more like fetuses than like older children or adults, unquote. As he cheerfully puts it, I quote, neither a fetus nor an infant has the conceptual wherewithal to contemplate a future or to want or value that future," end of quotation. He then argues a case for possible infanticide in the case of seriously disabled infants. But why the restriction to seriously disabled infants? If the objection to killing human beings is the objection to killing persons, and infants aren't persons, what's the objection to killing any infants, if you do it painlessly, and there aren't other objections, such as distressed parents? if, for instance, they're simply a nuisance. Now, I think that the peculiarities of Singer's position come in part from his concern with one kind of controversy. He's trying to cumber conservative policies based on a particular notion, the sanctity of human life. This helps to explain why his position on abortion and infanticide is the same as the pro-life position, but the other way up. He and the pro-life as both argue, if abortion, then infanticide, but they take that as an objection and he takes it as an encouragement. (laughs) Against all this, it's very important to say that one can believe, as I believe, that the notion of a human being as a member of a species is central to our moral thought without being committed to the entire set of rules that go under the label the sanctity of human life. Now the most basic question, however, is that raised by the general structure of Singer's position, rather than these details, and it's the same kind of question we've encountered already. Why are the fancy properties which are grouped under the label of personhood, quote, morally relevant to issues of destroying a certain kind of animal, while the property of being a human being isn't? Well, one answer might be, We favor and esteem these properties. We encourage their development. We hate and resent it if they're frustrated. And that's hardly surprising since our whole life, and not only our values, but our having any values at all, involve our having these properties ourselves. Well, that's a fine answer, but it doesn't answer this question since we also, and in complex relation to all that, do what Singer complains of, namely, use the idea of a human being in our moral thought, and draw a line round the class of human beings with regard to various things that we're ethically prepared to do. A different answer would be that it's simply better that the world should contain instances of the fancy properties of personhood but it's not simply better that the world should contain human beings as such. But that's once more our now familiar friend, absolute importance, that survivor from the enchanted world, bringing with it the equally familiar and encouraging thought that the properties we possess, well, most of us, not counting the infants, the Alzheimer patients and a few others, that those properties are being cheered on by the universe. Well, now, I should say at once that this isn't Singer's own answer to the question. He's a utilitarian, and he thinks, very roughly speaking, that the only thing that ultimately matters is how much suffering there is. To the extent that we should give special attention to persons, this is supposedly explained by the fact that persons are capable of suffering in some special ways that other animals can't suffer, because they can foresee the future and so on. Now, I don't want to argue over the familiar territory of whether that is a reasonable or helpful explanation of all the things we care about in relation to persons, namely whether the only thing that makes a difference is the various ways in which they can suffer. I want to ask something else, which leads back to my central question, our moral conceptions of ourselves as human beings living among other creatures. My question is not does the utilitarian view make sense of our other concerns in terms of our concern with suffering? My question is rather, how far does the utilitarian view make sense of our concern with suffering itself? Now many utilitarians, including Singer, are happy to use a model of an ideal or impartial observer. The idea, the model, the imag- is of an imaginary figure who knows everything, is equally impartial about everything, can take on board, as it were, all the suffering in the world. A philosopher proposing one version of such a model 50 years ago memory described this figure as, quote, omniscient, disinterested, dispassionate, but otherwise normal. <laughs> well, the model comes in various versions in many of which the figure isn't exactly dispassionate, rather he's benevolent. Well, that can mean several different things itself. But let's concentrate on the simplest application of the idea that the ideal observer is against suffering, and he wants there to be as little of it as possible. With his omniscience and impartiality, he, so to speak, takes on all the suffering, however exactly we're to conceive of that, and he takes it all on equally. Well, now, of course, he does begin to look a lot like a slimmed-down surrogate of the Christian God, and this might suggest that he represents yet another enactment of the cosmic point of view. Suffering or its absence is what has absolute importance, but I assume that utilitarians such as Singer hope that the model can be spelled out in more disenchanted terms. They deploy the model against what they see as prejudice, in particular the human prejudice, and the idea behind this Is that there is a sentiment or disposition or conviction which we do have, namely compassion or sympathy, or the belief that suffering is a bad thing, but, they claim, we express these sentiments in an irrationally restricted way. The way in which our sentiments of sympathy or compassion for suffering work is governed by the notorious inverse square law. That is, the further away, the less you feel it, roughly. Where the distances involved can, of course, be of all kinds. Spatial, they're on the other side of the world. Familial, national. Remember, there's always a headline in the Oxford paper when there's a vast earthquake somewhere on the other side of the world. Oxford man injured in earthquake. (laughs) (laughs) Racial, of course, notoriously, or governed by species membership. Now, the model of the ideal observer is supposed to be a corrective If we could take on all suffering as he does, we wouldn't be liable to these parochial biases and would feel and act in better ways. Well, no doubt the history of the device does lie, in fact, in a kind of secularized imitatio Christi, and I suspect that some of the sentiments it mobilizes are connected with that, but the utilitarians hope to present it as independent of that as a device expressing an extensive rational correction of the kind of thing we indeed feel. So I want to take the model seriously in a secular way, perhaps more seriously from a certain point of view than those who use it. Well, I've got two problems with it. One is very familiar, actually, and concerns the relations between the model and human action. Even if we thought that the ideal observer's outlook was a reliable guide to what would be a better state of affairs, how's that connected with what we, each of us, should be trying to do. With regard to animal suffering, a form of the problem, a form that goes back to the 19th century, is the question of policing nature. Even though much suffering to animals is caused directly or indirectly by human beings, it's also true that an immense amount of it is caused by other animals. This suffering must form a significant part of what is on the ideal observer's screen. Well, we're certainly in the business of reducing the harm caused by other animals to ourselves. We seek in some degree to reduce the harm we cause to other animals. The question arises whether we should be in the business of reducing the harm that other animals cause to each other, and generally in the business of reducing the suffering that goes on in nature. Well, utilitarians do offer some arguments to suggest that we shouldn't bother with that, arguments which about saving our energy and time and so on. But I av- find it f- hard to avoid the feeling that those answers are pallid and unconvincing rationalizations for a more basic reaction, that there's something altogether crazy about the idea, that it, <laughs> that it misrepresents our relations to nature. Some environmentalists, of course, think that we shouldn't try to improve nature in this respect because nature is sacred and we should interfere with it as little as possible anyway but they certainly aren't governed simply by the model of the ideal observer and his concern for suffering. Well, now this leads to a more fundamental point. Those who see our selective sympathies as a biased and prejudiced filtering of the suffering in the world, who think in terms of our shadowing, as far as we can, the consciousness of the ideal observer and guiding our actions by reflection on what the ideal observer takes on, I wonder whether they ever consider what it would really be like to take on what the ideal observer supposedly takes on. Whatever exactly takes on may mean, it's supposed to imply this, that the sufferings of other people and of all other creatures should be as vividly present to us in some sense, as closely connected with our reasons for action as our own sufferings of those of people we care for who are immediately at hand that's how the model is supposed to correct for bias but what would it conceivably be like for this but is so even for a few seconds what would it be like to take on every piece of suffering that a given moment any creature is undergoing it would be an ultimate horror an unendurable nightmare and what would be the connection of that nightmare to our actions in the model The ideal observer is supposed just to be an observer. He can't do anything. But our action, the idea is, is supposed to shadow or be guided by reflection on what he and his omniscience and impartiality is taking on. And if for a moment we got anything like an adequate idea of what that is and really guided our actions by it, then surely we would annihilate the planet if we could. And if other planets containing conscious creatures are similar to ours in the suffering they contain, we would annihilate them as well. This model has got things totally inside out. We indeed have reasons to listen to our sympathies and extend them, not only to wider groups of human beings, but into a concern for other animals so far as they are in our power. That's already a human disposition. The Oxford English Dictionary definition of the word humane reads, marked by sympathy with and consideration for the needs and distresses of others, feeling or showing compassion and tenderness towards human beings and the lower animals. Now, we can act intelligibly from these concerns only if we see them as aspects of human life. It's not an accident or limitation or a prejudice that we can't care equally about all the suffering in the world. It's a condition of our existence and of our sanity. Equally, it's not a demand that the demands of the moral consciousness require us to leave human life altogether and then come back to regulate the distribution of concerns, including our own, by criteria derived from nowhere. We're surrounded by a world which we can regard with a very large range of reactions, wonder, joy, sympathy, disgust, horror. We can, being as they, as we are, reflect on these reactions and modify them to some extent. We can think about how this human estate or settlement should be run and about its impact on its surroundings. But it's a total illusion to think that this enterprise can be licensed in some respects and condemned in others by credentials that come from another source, a source that's not already involved in the peculiarities of the human enterprise. And it's an irony that this illusion, even when it takes the form of rejecting so-called speciesism and the human prejudice, actually shares a structure with older illusions about there being a cosmic scale of importance in terms of which human beings should understand themselves. If we look at it in the light of those old illusions, this outlook, namely the opposition to the human prejudice, will be closer in spirit to what I call the Lutheran version rather than the celebratory version in virtue of its insistence that human beings are twisted by their selfishness. It's unlike the Lutheran outlook, of course, precisely in its anti-humanism. Luther thought that it did matter to the universe what happened to mankind, but this view thinks that all that matters to the universe is roughly speaking how much suffering it contained. But there's another difference as well. Luther thought that human beings couldn't redeem themselves unaided but the opponents of the human prejudice typically think that with the help of rationality and these theories they may be able to do so. Now I've said that it's itself part of a human or humane outlook to be concerned with how animals should be treated and there's nothing in what I've said to suggest that we shouldn't be concerned with that. But I do want to repeat something that I've said elsewhere that very significantly the only question for us is how those animals should be treated. That's not true of our relations to other human beings. And that already shows that we're not dealing with a prejudice like racism or sexism. Some white male who thinks that the only question about the relations between us, as he puts it, white males, and other human beings, namely women and people of colour, is how we should treat them, that person is already prejudiced prejudiced. But in the case of other animals, that's the only question there could be. Well, that's how it is here on this planet now. It's a consequence of the fact that I've already mentioned that in terms of a range of abilities that control action, we happen to live on an evolutionary plateau. Human beings don't have to deal with any creature that in terms of argument, principle, world view or whatever can answer back but it might be otherwise and it may be helpful in closing to imagine something different. Well let's suppose that in the well-known way of science fiction creatures arrive with whom to some extent we can communicate who are intelligent and technologically advanced they got here after all They have relations with each other that are mediated by understood rules and so on and so forth. Now, there's an altogether new sort of question for the human prejudice. If these culturally ordered creatures arrived, the human being who thought that it was just a question of how we should treat them has seriously underestimated the problem, both ethically and probably prudentially. Well, the late Robert Nozick once gave it as an argument for vegetarianism that if we claimed the right to eat animals less smart than ourselves, we'd have to concede the right to such visitors to eat us, if they were smarter than us to the degree that we're smarter than the animals we eat. In fact, I don't think that it is an argument for vegetarianism. It's rather an objection to one argument for (laughs) meat-eating, and I'm not too sure how good it is even as that. But the main point is that if they propose to eat us, it'd be quite crazy to debate their rights at all. <laughs> the 19th century egoist philosopher Max Stirner said, The tiger that assails me is in the right, and I who strike him down am also in the right. I defend against him not my right, but myself. But Stirner's remark concerned a tiger, and it's a matter of life and death. Well, not much science fiction, such as the Pure Isle Independence Day, defines the issue in those terms from the beginning, and so makes the issues fairly easy. It's fairly easy, too, if the aliens are just here to help, in terms that we can recognize as help. The standard codings of science fiction, particularly in movies, are designed to make such questions simple. The hostile and nasty aliens tend to be either slimy and disgusting (coughs) or rigid and metallic in one brilliant early example Wells's War of the Worlds they're both at once the nice and cooperative on the other hand are furry like the co-pilot in Star Wars or cute like E.T. or ethereal fairies like those little things in the bright light at the end of Close Encounters of the Third Kind However, we can imagine a situation in which things would be harder. The arrivals might be very disgusting indeed. Their faces, for instance, if those are faces, are seething with what seem to be worms. But if we wait long enough to find out what they're at, we may gather that they're quite benevolent. They just want to live with us, rather closely with us. (laughs) Well, what should we make of that proposal? Some philosophers may be at hand to remind us about distinguishing between moral and non-moral values and to tell us that their benevolence and helpfulness are morally significant, whereas the fact that they are unforgettably disgusting is not. But suppose their aim in their unaggressive way is to make the world more, as we would put it, disgusting. And what if their disgustingness is really, truly unforgettable? (laughs) Or we could turn things around in a different direction. The aliens, in terms of our preferences, are moderately good-looking. And they are, again, extremely benevolent and reasonable. And they've had much more successful experience than we have in running peaceable societies. But they have found that they do need to run them, and that too much species self-assertion or indeed cultural autonomy, proved to be destabilizing and destructive. So, painlessly, they will rid us, certainly, of our prejudices and to the required extent of some of our cultural and other peculiarities. But what should we make of that? Would the opponents of speciesism want us to join them? Join them, indeed, not on the ground that we couldn't beat them, which might be sensible, if not very heroic, but on principle... Well, the situation that this fantasy presents is in some ways familiar. It's like that of a human group defending its cultural, possibly ethnic, identity against some other human group which claims to dominate or assimilate them. With this very large difference, however, that since we're dealing here with another and indeed non-terrestrial species, there's no question of cultural or ethnic variation being eroded by sexual fusion. Indeed, from the perspective of sex, it must be said, the idea that speciesism, racism, and yet again gender prejudice are all alike does look extremely peculiar. Anyway, the fantasy situation with the aliens will resemble a familiar political situation in some ways. For one thing, there may well be a disagreement among the threatened group, in this case, human beings, in part an ethical disagreement... Between those who think that the invaders are right and we ought to side with them, let's call them the collaborationists, and those who are resistors. It looks as though the utilitarians will be committed to joining the collaborationists. Now, in this fantasy case, the resistors will be organizing under the banner defend humanity or stand up for human beings. Well, that's an ethical appeal in an ethical dispute. Of course, this doesn't make human being into an ethical concept any more than the cause of Basque separatism. An ethical cause, as Basque separatists see it, makes Basque into an ethical concept. The relevant ethical concept is something like loyalty to or identity with one's ethnic or cultural grouping. And in the fantasy case, the ethical concept is loyalty to one species. Moreover, and this is the significant lesson of this fantasy, this is an ethical concept we have already. It's the one we're using implicitly all the time, when, for instance, in the context of our ethical thought, we appeal to the fact that a creature is a human being. It's simply that as things are in real life, because we live on this evolutionary plateau, we don't spell it out because there is no other creature who could use or be motivated by that same consideration but with a different application. That is to say, there's no creature belonging to some other species that can articulate, reflect on, or be motivated by reasons appealing to their species membership. So the idea of there being an ethical concept that appeals to our species membership is entirely coherent. It's shown by the fantasy case and its actual use is familiar in the actual case. Now, of course, there may be ethical arguments about the value or merits of any such concept, namely a concept that appeals to something like loyalty to a group membership or identity with it. Some people, in the spirits of those who'd be collaborationists in the fantasy case, are against all such ideas. It's notable in the political morality of the present time that some people seem to be opposed to such attitudes in dominant groups, but very much in favor of them for subordinate groups. Others, again, may be respectful of the energizing power of such conceptions, and of the sense they can give of a life that has a rich and particular character, as contrasted at the extreme with the utilitarian ideal of the itinerant welfare worker who, with his bad line to the ideal observer, goes around turning on and off the taps of benevolence. At the same time, however, those who respect these conceptions of loyalty and identity may be rightly sceptical about the coercive rhetoric, the lies about differences, and the sheer violence that are often associated with such ideas and with the movements that express them. Some of those objections no doubt carry over to ways in which we express species identity and loyalty as things actually are. And that's why the opponents of so-called speciesism and the human prejudice quite often have a point about particular policies and attitudes, even though they're quite mistaken about the framework of ideas with which they condemn those things. Well, should we conclude that the human prejudice if one wants to call it that, must ultimately be inescapable. Well, let's go back one last time to the fantasy of the arrival of the benevolent managerial aliens and the consequent debate among human beings between the collaborationists who want to join them and the resistors who want to run the human independence movement. In that debate even the collaborationists have to use a humanly intelligible discourse, argument which their fellow human beings can recognize. If that meant that their arguments had to be peculiar to human beings, then their situation would indeed be paradoxical. It would be as though in the familiar political discussions about the cultural identity of the Basques, even the assimilationists had to use arguments peculiar to Basque culture, So let's suppose that it doesn't mean that. That is, that although they have to use arguments which are comprehensible to their other human beings, they're arguments peculiar to, as it were, the separatists or the uh, resistors. The relevant alternative, I think, in the fantasy case, is that the collaborationists use arguments that they share not only with the other human beings, but they share with the benevolent invaders. Indeed, many moral philosophers think that the correct moral principles are ones that could be shared with any rational or reflective agents, whatever they were otherwise like. Now, even if this were so, those principles wouldn't necessarily tell us and these creatures how to share a life together. Maybe we and they would be too different in other respects for that to be possible. Remember the disgusting benevolent aliens. And the best we could do is to establish a non-aggression pact with them and coexist at a distance. Well, that would leave our prejudices, if their prejudices, where they were. But suppose that we are to live together. There's no reason to suppose that the universal principles we share with the aliens will justify our prejudices, We can't even be sure that they'll justify our being allowed to have our prejudices as a matter of toleration. As I said in setting up the fantasy, the long experience and benevolent understanding possessed by the aliens may enable them to see that tolerating our kinds of prejudice leads to instability and injustice. So they'll want to usher our prejudices out, and on these assumptions we should agree. The collaborationists must be right, it seems because their moral conceptions transcend the local peculiarities. But if that's so, doesn't something even stronger follow? I said in setting up these space fiction fantasies that the Independence Day scenario in which the aliens are manifestly hostile and want to destroy us is for us an ethically easy case. We defend ourselves. Well, no doubt we shall try. But should we try? Perhaps, the critics will say, this is just another irrational, visceral human reaction to defend ourselves in this situation. The benevolent and fair-minded and far-sighted aliens may know a great deal about us and our history and understand that our prejudices are unreformable, that things will never be better in this part of the universe until we are removed. Now, I'm not saying this is necessarily what such aliens would think. I'm not saying that the universal moralists, the potential collaborationists, would necessarily agree with them. But I don't see that if they disagree that they could be certain that it was just not another self-serving prejudice. This, it seems to me, is the place to which the project of trying to transcend altogether the ways in which human beings understand themselves and make sense of their practices could, in principle, end up. And here, I think I can only ask, we can only ask at this stage, what side are you on? In many more limited connections, hopes for self-improvement lie very close to the risk of self-hatred. When the hope is to improve humanity to a point at which every aspect of its hold on the world can be justified before a higher court... When that aim, the result is likely to be either self-deception if you think you've succeeded, or misanthropy when you recognise that you will always fail. Personally, I think that while there are many things to loathe about human beings, their sense of their ethical identity as a species isn't one of them. Thank you very much. <laughs> Professor Williams will be happy to answer questions. <laughs> There's one there. If you can wait for the microphone,
1: I agree completely with your idea of uh, species. Sorry, here. I <laughs> even with the microphone, you can't hear yeah. me. I agree completely with your idea of a uh, speciesism in the sense that it might be a unique prejudice uh, in which both parties seem to acquiesce to this prejudice. I'm willing to eat a crocodile, and a crocodile is willing to eat me. And neither party had to be rather hungry to do this act. But on the other hand, when we study the evolution of our own civilization, I think it's quite apparent that over the last few thousand years that we've changed from a eye eye for an eye society to more of a turn-the-other-cheek society. And from what
0: kind of society, sorry?
1: From an eye for an eye, so from Old Testament to New Testament, at least in Western civilization, in which case we try to create a more gentle and kinder world. And I think this kind of philosophy has worked out quite well for us. You've mentioned several times your remarks that animals lack the mental facilities to have, like, the same mental facilities as us. And, but when I think about practicing uh, turning the other cheek, in many instances, in, that in, those, in some circumstances, you have to turn the other cheek even knowing that your opponent does not share the same mental facilities that you do. So could we practice the same approach with animals, and would this lift us from the other species? And would this be the first act that would show that we are truly different from other animals and in that sense important?
0: Well, I'm not quite sure what point we're making. I mean,
1: first, the
0: idea that both parties to the system of prejudice acquiesce in it is not peculiar, of course, to the animal case, because the um, the same thing in a certain sense was true of other forms of intra-human prejudice and that's what's called false consciousness but of course the point is that precisely in the case of human beings you can transcend it because the beliefs of the oppressed parties change now the first point I made was simply that's not possible in the case of animals. now really the point you're making I think is in terms of a rather spectacular alleged phenomenon of the widening circle as Singer and others have put it namely that our sympathies have extended Um, I should say, it's a small detail in what you said, that some seem to be the same point as the point about an eye for an eye. The question about whether you are vengeful or keen on retribution is a different question from what body of persons you regard as part of the society to which these principles apply. And I must say, if your view is that there's a uniform tendency towards more liberal or less retributivist views of punishment, that seems to me historically remarkably optimistic. But that's,
1: uh, well, depending on what your I, view is. I don't think it has to be necessarily uh, yeah. retributive punishment. Um, I think it's oh, Okay, quite... well,
0: you just mentioned eye for an eye on the, in passing. That's all. I mean, the question is, can we be nicer to animals than we have been in the past, yeah. Sure. I mean, as we become technologically more powerful, we have more leisure, we have more elbow room, we're not threatened by saber-toothed tigers and things. Yeah, we've done quite well at that. It's been done rather as we did with the other hominids. I mean, many of the immediate threateners have actually been removed. It's also true that our most constant battles are with animals that don't actually get much of a vote from the animal rights lobby, namely bacteria uh, who, on the whole, have been doing rather well. I mean, if you're looking at the general history of evolution, uh, on the whole, I put my money on bacteria to be here when larger animals have disappeared. I, I, I don't uh, think it's...
1: I think one last that.
0: remark about evolution, though. It is an absolutely extraordinary phenomenon, the treatment of this subject by evolutionary psychologists. I name in particular Pinker. Pinker first tells us that a large number of our liberal policies are based on neglect of the psychology we've inherited from the conditions of our earlier ancestors in which our psychology was selected for. That's true, for instance, of various egalitarian Policies, and also, interestingly, of modernist architecture and a few other things he happens to dislike. At the same time, he tells us that we shall join in fully in Singer's widening circle. When I asked Pinker personally whether he thought that a sympathy with other animals as such was part of our hereditary genetic inheritance of our psychology from our early ancestors, he said, well, we could transcend it. And there is actually an absolutely elementary, fatuous psychology of transcendence, which is grafted on top of the alleged quasi determinism of evolutionary psychology. And that doesn't even start, as it were. I'm not saying you said that, but I just make my remark in that context.
2: Okay, it's on. Uh, uh, you said that um, where our relationship to animals is concerned, the only relevant question is how we should treat them. I think that's probably true, since... Um, but you didn't really address in your talk, I, I didn't hear it, uh, how exactly we should treat them. That was sort of a question no. that was left out, which is fine. I didn't tell you. I um, mean, yeah. people who think we should treat animals badly, or at least don't aren't that concerned yeah. about how we treat them, generally make use of an argument that you move past quickly, also, I think, rightly, which is this which is that they they point to um you know uh um our rationality, ability to use language, technology, yeah. art, music, this sort of thing. Um talk about just meat eaters, you know, but also um development of wilderness areas, um energy policy, all sorts of things, where we build, how we build, that kind of thing. I mean, do you really think that that that, that kind of argument is more or less baseless? Can you move past it very quickly? Do you think there's more substance to it? Than...
0: Sorry, I'm not quite sure which argument it is. I mean, the argument about... I did mention one argument in this area. It is, of course, true that we can think about how to treat animals in a way that other animals can't think about how to treat us. That's true.
1: That's <laughs> sure. agreed,
0: right? Yes, now, that's true. that doesn't tell us yet what to think about how to treat other animals. Um, now, it may well be that we have to, that we have good reason. I wasn't even involved in these arguments. There are, I believe, probably, some rather good arguments for vegetarianism. I don't actually share them, but I think there are some rather good arguments for vegetarianism. One of them, obviously, is that producing meat is an astonishingly inefficient way of using sunlight. That actually seems to be quite a good argument. Now, these other arguments I'm merely suggesting that you might get on the wrong track if you thought that the fact we possess this moral consciousness unlike other animals, also meant that, un, that unlike other animals, we weren't predators. Maybe we are predators with a moral conscience. So what we do is organize our predations in a way that other predators don't organize their predation. Now, would that make sense in your view? Or do you think the fact that we have moral consciousness while other animals don't means that we must be completely unlike other animals in not being predators?
2: I think it's... Um... I would have, uh, I think it's more of a question of priority. Um, a lot of uh, um, 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 animal rights advocates, myself among them, I think, would yeah. say that what's more important to look at is, um, um, is our emotional capacities, um, our uh, social abilities, yeah. uh, this sort of thing, uh, creativity, which other animals we're finding out more and more, um, these are goods they participate in a lot and sure, sure. Um, yes, in I very rich ways. Um, I don't have an answer to your question. Do you think that that particular approach to animal rights is, um, is also a wrong track? Or No, what, well, what is... I think that it doesn't deliver the right answer. I mean, the more we can know about other
0: animals, the better, partly because other animals are limitlessly fascinating. We have very false views about them. I said that. What I do think is that there is a kind of potential contradiction in some lines of animal right thought. On the one hand, they say... We've got to remember that we're part of nature. We share the world with other species. We are one species among others. We weren't sent here as dominators of the world. Secondly, we're totally different from any other animals because we have moral consciousness. And therefore, we can make ourselves into vegetarians. Now, there's an inherent tension between those two things. That is, the old domination story is wrong, but so is the story that our, quote, moral consciousness enables us to transcend all our other animal characteristics. I think we are one species among others. There seems to be some rather evidence that we're a carnivorous one. There's certainly a great deal of evidence that we're a predatory one, and maybe that is one of the limitations or facts about the kind of species we are that our moral consciousness has to deal with. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, on, on a slightly different line, um, when someone acts inhuman, in, Sorry. when someone acts inhumanly, yeah. what is it that they've lost, or what is it that they've become? Because they have not become an animal, and they've not become an alien. That's right. That's a very, very good question, and I think that there are a lot of complex answers to it. Um, and when they behave inhumanly. Interesting, as you absolutely rightly say, it doesn't mean that they act like an animal. Uh, For instance, they don't destroy something in rage, typically, if they act inhumanly. What they typically do is that they behave either like a machine or a a disembodied intelligence. Uh, And one way of acting inhumanly is to act on certain kinds of principles. (laughs) any other questions cornell
2: Hmm. then with luther and of course we've got erasmus sitting in the center And I mean, once the Christian backdrop is is lessened, you may end up with a checkoff, even. But you have a humanist who's open to these kind of arguments. But then one wonders, and I think this is part of Singer's concern are there any conditions you could imagine in which you would give up the kind of humanism that you're committed to? Well, Colonel, I think.